Hey, movie fans, and welcome back to another episode of the Uncharted Media Podcast. This is episode 46, the best movie endings of all time. Kind of piggybacking off of last week's episode where we talked about the best movie movie openings of all time. Uh, however, unlike last week, I am riding solo this week. No Josh. He's a little preoccupied this week, but that's all right. I got this. Uh, we'll go over some of the latest movie news, uh, and then I'll try my best to carry this discussion. It'll be like hearing voices in my head, except projected out to you, my wonderful listeners at home or wherever you're at. Um, so first of all, we normally like to cover some movie news here, as you all know by now. But in the whole Uncharted media, we like to cover other media besides movies. And in this case, this week, we're going to talk a little bit about theme parks. And Josh is going to be kicking himself that he's going to miss this week for one specific reason, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Last week, uh, Universal Orlando held a big conference in, well, kind of not really conference, a big meeting in the Orlando uh, Convention Center, like a re- the big convention center here in the Orlando area, um, to more or less announce the worst-kept secret in the history of theme parks. So a few months back, uh, Universal made this big purchase of, like, 500 plus uh, acres of land in the middle of Orlando. That's a couple miles from Universal, to which everyone was just kind of going, hmm, kind of sounds like you're building a theme park. And sure enough, that's what they announced. Now, the speculated name leading up to it was Fantastic Worlds. Um, I thought that was a horrible name for a theme park. It, it just sounded cheesy and bad. And this is coming from the same people that did the names Islands of Adventure, which the more you think about it, it is also kind of a cheesy name. Uh, But no, Universal announced their new theme park, calling it Epic Universe, which I'm in the minority. I actually really like this name. I'm seeing a lot of people on Twitter and other social medias kind of bashing the name. I really enjoy it. Now, this announcement was a bit of a give and take. So they announced this park was coming. They showed a sketch of what the park layout would be. But that was about it. They didn't really um, announce any of the IPs that would be attached to it, when we could expect to see this park opening, um, what kind of transportation there would be between the parks, what kind of hotels. There's a hotel in the original sketch, but that's about it. Thankfully, I've done some digging, and I've kept my ear to the ground. So some of the rumored lands that have been speculated for this and kind of what we can expect with this park... Uh, I'll break it down right now. So, uh, first off, we got Nintendo Land. So this was speculated to go into um, Universal Studios proper in the kids area, which is really outdated for those that go to Universal. It's a really outdated area that kind of really needs a refresher. Um, But if it went in that location, it would have been confined by its space. So I think it's a much wiser move to move it to this new spot because... You've got more land to work with, and in this sketch that we're seeing, this, like, teaser or whatever, um, there's clearly room for expansion next to where this speculated Nintendo Land is supposed to go. Some people are saying maybe a Pokemon Land in the future, or Nintendo Land is room to have a lot of different aspects, uh, like a Donkey Kong ride, a Mario Kart VR ride, which could be awesome. But there's a lot of things that could fall under the Nintendo banner, which in and of itself could be expanded upon. Um, Plus, if you're trying to bring people into this new park, Nintendo is a big enough IP that I think would be really easy to bring people in with. 
So I'm excited for that right off the bat. That is not, however, the area that I'm most excited for. Um, the area I'm most excited about is the rumored Universal Monsters area, to which I just rejoice. Hallelujah, Universal Monsters. Because uh, I love the old school stuff. We're getting a um, house at Halloween Horror Nights this year at Universal Orlando um, with the classic Universal Monsters. I like the old school stuff. Uh, Dracula, Frankenstein. So far, my personal favorite is Invisible Man. I really like that. Um, there's rumors of a... Uh, Dracula Tower Dark Ride, which could be a lot of fun, um, kind of similar to Disney's Haunted Mansion, uh, but just having some form of a location within this new park that is like year-round mild spooks and scares could be a lot of fun for those of us that like uh, the horror scene, having something that we can go to year-round to kind of help with the fix would be great. I think that'd be a lot of fun. Naturally, because this is a universal park, there's going to be some form of Harry Potter in here. Uh, there's rumored to be a Fantastic Beasts area, um, which more than likely would include the Ministry of Magic, which is one of the community that has not really been seen in the theme parks yet. However, my fingers are kind of crossed that, and this is a long shot I know, but with this new park, we see the Burroughs, the Weasley's house. Um, show up in a park. I've always liked the Weasley's house. If that was an attraction similar to, um, in Disney World, there's a thing called the uh, Swiss Family Robinson Treehouse. Of a, there, it's not an attraction or anything. It's literally just a walking tour. You walk at your own pace and you see the little cool things in the house. If we can get something almost similar to that with the burrows, with the Weasley house, and things like move on their own like they do in the burrows, um, I think that could be a lot of fun. Um, there's a lot of the Wizarding World has a lot of potential for more expansion. Uh, they've already... The Wizarding parts of Universal, as they stand now, are absolutely their strongest elements. Uh, between Diagon Alley and um, uh, Hogsmeade, uh, those are the two strongest elements in both parks. So I fully expect that to continue for a third park. The Harry Potter lore is just so deep that there's a lot of stuff that they can mine Yes, the movies with Fantastic Beast movies have not been great, um, but I think there's still enough cool material that you can do. Uh, maybe go into the Ministry of Magic, maybe have a Ministry of Magic type ride. I think that could be a lot of fun. And now here's where Josh is going to be kicking himself for missing out on this. Um, so the last rumored area is one that, let's just say... We, behind the scenes, make fun of Josh a lot for because he brings it to our attention as much as we can. But the rumored land, the last rumored land for this epic universe is going to be a How to Train Your Dragon themed area. Pause for Josh's screaming. Yep, I'm sure he's he's freaking out somewhere. Um, now, we don't know that much about any of these lands, but what's interesting to note is... Um, by the How to Train Your Dragon area in this sketch, or where it's rumored to be, there is a um, dual racing coaster of like two coaster tracks that will kind of interweave. What's interesting about this is Universal just recently closed a dueling coaster themed around dragons, actually. It was dueling dragons before uh, it got a Harry Potter retheming, and then it got torn down uh, to make room for the Hagrid ride that just opened and is... Um, doing incredibly well. It routinely has like three to four hour waits. It's a really popular ride. Um, 
I would not be surprised at all if they kind of bring back the concept of dueling dragons. And if they do it in a how to train your dragons setting, I think that would be a great fit. Um, again, that's more Josh's forte. Josh is all about the how to train your dragon. So now that we're getting a how to train your dragon attraction, I think it's only a matter of time before he visits this neck of the woods sooner rather than later. Next up, we go transition to our regularly scheduled movie news topics. First of all, we've got one that's a lot of news to break down that can go in a lot of different directions. So let's kind of break this down piece by piece. Um, Disney, as we all know, recently acquired Fox. Earlier this year, the ink finally dried on the contract. Disney now owns Fox. However... Um, as is the case with any form of regime change, there's going to be some lingering effects. So there have been several projects that have come out um, this year that are still under the Fox banner that were already in production and were released before uh, that had already been in production and already been worked on. So more or less, Disney had to release them and now it's come. Where I'm getting at with this is Dark Phoenix. Dark Phoenix did not do very well. X-Men Dark Phoenix, the final X-Men movie before MCU is eventually going to reboot it. That was a movie that was already in production before Disney made this deal with Fox. They're already going ahead. Um, so this movie, more, Disney more or less had to get this movie out of the way. The problem is Dark Phoenix lost them a lot. And I mean a lot of money. Dark Phoenix combined with their... Um, some other Fox-related movies that were already a thing that were happening before Disney bought them. But combined, those Fox properties have now lost Disney over $170 million in the past six months. So, this has caused some shifting within Disney internal slash Fox internal as to who reports to what, what goes where, and where we're going forward. So first off, Disney has scrapped any future Fox movies. That doesn't mean we'll never get Fox, but for the time being, anything that is not officially shooting right now is stopped. Uh, more or less to um, just kind of reset, reevaluate, get everything grouped back together, be like, okay, this is where we stand. This is things we cannot do. These are things we can do, okay? Because uh, no one wants to lose $170 million in six months. That is a little ridiculous. Um, but for those of you who care more about the comic news, this definitely affects you guys too. So as you know, Deadpool, the hard R-rated Deadpool for Deadpool 1 and Deadpool 2, um, was a Fox character. And everyone's excited to see the X-Men and Fantastic Four eventually join the MCU. But, for months, it seemed like Deadpool would be a separate entity. Fox would keep making Deadpool movies. That way, he could remain R and not be in the MCU. So, people... There wouldn't be that R-rated um, movie that sticks out like a sore thumb in the vast array of PG-13 that is the MCU. Well, now that may be changing as Deadpool... The character of Deadpool and all the rights that go with it apparently will now report everything Marvel, Deadpool, X-Men, Fantastic Four, everything, including Deadpool, 
will now be under the banner of Kevin Feige. This was not the case before. Kevin Feige, uh, when they signed Fox, he was getting X-Men and Fantastic Four. Deadpool would stay separate so they can keep that R and everything. That is not the case now. Now Deadpool apparently will eventually be in the MCU. It appears on paper as we stand right now. So, um, the Deadpool 2 director, I believe Deadpool 2 director, has come out and said he doesn't think Deadpool needs to be rated R. Um, I know a lot of fans are adamant that Deadpool is an R-rated character, and the first two Deadpool movies worked because they were R-rated. And some people are naturally voicing their opinions that a PG-13 Deadpool or an MCU Deadpool will be a bad choice. Um, honestly, I'm in the exact opposite camp. Josh and I have stated on this podcast many times before, um, Deadpool can absolutely work as a PG-13 character if you do it correctly. Um, I've stated in the past that Deadpool swears a lot. That's part of his charm. But the thing is with Deadpool... He's also self-aware. So what I've always suggested is he swears, but the movie bleeps it out. And then whenever it bleeps it out, he calls attention to it. That, I think, would be a fun technique. Um, but also, saying that he has to be R-rated, to me, is a little lazy. Of There's always ways around it if you write the story in a good, correct way. And also... PG-13 nowadays, you can kind of get away with a lot. Uh, the lines between PG-13 and R are starting to get more and more blurred. So I still think you can get pretty far with a Deadpool movie, even without um, hard violence. I think you could still do plenty. It doesn't have to be as nearly as violent as Logan, a movie that we'll talk about in our main discussion later. Um... Yeah, I feel like you don't have to get nearly that dark for Deadpool. I think PG-13 is just fine. Um, now, that being said, Disney has announced that they will also be doing plenty of other things with the Fox properties going forward, including rebooting some franchises and continuing some franchises. They uh, announced that they will have every intention to continue or keep using the property that is Planet of the Apes. Uh, after how War for the Planet of the Apes ended, I'm not entirely sure that we'll keep going in that um, Caesar-era timeline, but I would like more Apes movies like those because they were so well done and so good, um, but we'll just have to see. The interesting ones is Disney+, Plus, obviously the streaming service. Uh, they've announced that they will be rebooting some movies just for the Disney+, Plus of... Some new original movies based off other things. So more or less remaking them just for Disney+. Plus, Like Disney Plus originals just like you would get Netflix originals. So we will be getting uh, reboots of Home Alone and Night at the Museum. As well as Diary of a Wimpy Kid for those fans out there for some reason. Um, okay. I don't know how I feel about this. I actually care more about Night at the Museum than I do about Home Alone. Primarily because Home Alone has one good movie. Home Alone is not a great movie. Yeah, I'm putting that on record. I think Home Alone is just good. It's fine. Um, but all these people that are so upset about Home Alone getting rebooted, you do know 
that Home Alone franchise never ended, and we have countless horrible spinoffs and sequels. So I don't see how this is going to harm the franchise any further than it already is damaged. Um, and what's wrong with a reboot? If they do it successfully, who cares? Uh, I do actually care more about Night at the Museum because I remember seeing the first one with my parents, and we were completely surprised by how good it was. Um, just a lot of fun, had some good heart, Ben Stiller was great, everyone was all cast, um, and of course the best thing about them was the amazing work that was Robin Williams, and I will always remember that the third one was the last Robin Williams movie that I ever saw him in, um, with Secret of the Tomb, when he has a really lovely and heartfelt tribute and goodbye as a send-off for him, and it's just... It was really good. I've, I've always liked Night at the Museum. It's a good franchise. I would like to see more of that. I don't know if we need to reboot it um, so much as we could just make more of them. Or, better yet, just have it set in a different museum somewhere completely different. So, like, Night at the Museum takes place in New York. Maybe this is set in the same world, but it's set in San Francisco or London or somewhere else. I think that could be a lot of fun. So, last week... Uh, Josh and I talked about a rumor that was going around that Andy Serkis was one of three names along with Travis Knight and I think Rupert, Rupert Everett, I believe is his name. Uh, those three names are being tossed around to direct Venom 2. Well, now we can officially confirm that Andy Serkis has been brought on to direct Venom 2 and apparently star of the film Tom Hardy has been helping him with the story. Um, now Tom Hardy was very gung-ho about the first Venom, well, naturally, because he's an actor involved with the movie, so he has to stand by it, um, but he went on record quite a bit, saying that there was a lot of scenes that he really liked, but got cut from the movie, maybe because they were, the material would have pushed it too close to rated R, uh, I'm not sure, but I've, I think this is good, that Tom Hardy has some creative input for the movie, he clearly knows what he wants to do, Andy Serkis, I think, is a great pick for this movie uh as one of the pundits pundits i listened to on youtube brought up that i hadn't even thought about um venom is a movie that relies on a lot of cgi and motion capture so bringing in andy circus to direct andy circus is single-handedly the best motion capture actor in history so he knows motion capture in and out so i think he can bring a different level of expertise and insight to the motion capture technology, to the CGI, and just kind of how to perform for a film like this. But also, he has some directorial experience. I think we talked about it last week. Of um, During Lord of the Rings, he would do a lot of the second unit stuff. Um, Peter Jackson trusted him a lot with filming. So, Andy Serkis is a smart guy. That being said, I think this has a very, very good shot of being better than the first Venom. I think the first Venom is... It's fine. It was better than I was expecting just because my expectations were so low. Uh, but with Andy Serkis directing, with Carnage clearly being the villain, um, I think this is a recipe to be a really fun and enjoyable sequel. Whether we go that route, I'm not sure yet. Um, I will be curious if we get any form of a Morbius tie-in with Jared Leto's Morbius movie coming in the near future. Um, but yeah, I think this could be a really good fit. Uh, yeah, that's all I really got to say about Venom 2. But now we get to the news topic that I've waited to talk about for so long. And it's a story that I never thought I would be able to say 
but now I can say it. Kevin Conroy, the best Batman ever. Hands down, not even close. Kevin Conroy, the voice of Batman since 1992, will be playing Bruce Wayne for the first time ever in live-action form in the Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover special for the CW this year. So, um, not too long ago, we talked about how Brandon Routh of Superman Returns fame will be returning to the role of Superman for this Crisis on Infinite Earths special. We also said how Burt Ward, the 60s Robin, will be here. But, to me, this is the big one. This is the home run, having Kevin Conroy, who has voiced Batman in Batman the Animated Series, Mask of the Phantasm, um, Mystery of the Batwoman in uh, Justice League, Batman Beyond, the Arkham games, uh, Injustice. He is the definitive Batman. He is the greatest Batman voice of all time, but we never have seen him in a live-action form. I am so, so excited. Now, something I think a lot of people are taking out of context is... Yes, he has been cast in this special, but he has been cast as Bruce Wayne. In none of the articles I've seen have they stated that he will be playing Batman. So don't expect Kevin Conroy to suit up. I think it'd be cool if he did, but I'm not expecting him to. I'm expecting something more similar to uh, Batman Beyond Bruce Wayne, which I still think would be amazing. Now, here I go putting on my tinfoil hat because I can dream, dang it. I think we're still going to get some more casting announcements for this Crisis on Infinite Earth special because they're just trying to load up this thing as busy as possible. Um, there's even some rumors of Diggle's character, an alternate universe version of him, is a Green Lantern. Now, those are just rumors. That's kind of far-fetched and out there. But I have one, I'm going to put my tinfoil hat on, that I would love to see. That is, we already have Kevin Conroy. How great would it be if we finally got a live-action Joker played by Mark Hamill and they share scenes together? Oh, I would love that so much. That's over 25 years in the making. I That's, that's a long shot. But I think with how this crossover special is shaping up to more or less be fan service, the movie, the TV special, I I can totally see them going down that route, and I really hope they do. Um, this is the news that I'm most excited for. Kevin Conroy is phenomenal as Batman. I'm looking forward to seeing what they do for Crisis on Infinite Earths because it's such a big, overarching story. So for those of you who don't know what Crisis on Infinite Earths is, is... Um, there's a character called the Anti-Monitor, and he more or less is destroying universes. So, um, say in this universe, Superman is Russian, and in this universe, uh, Batman is a woman, or in this universe, uh, Robin is Bruce Wayne. Like, all kinds of somewhat similar to our realities, but slightly different, and all of them are converging into one main story where all those other universes are being destroyed, and the one that we know, the universe that we know and are familiar with, is the main one that needs to save the day from everything else. So there's a lot of fun, what-if possibilities that we can go with this TV special. I just love that they're really digging deep in their catalog to bring back 
beloved DC icons like uh, Burt Ward, like Kevin Conroy. Keep these uh, casting announcements coming. I'm, I have not watched Arrow and Flash or The Flash in a long time. That being said, oh, I'm watching this, and I'll probably re-watch it. And the fun thing that I think uh, not a lot of people are catching up on is, so these specials span different episodes. So, like, part one will be on Arrow, part two will be on Flash, part three will be on Supergirl, etc., etc. Um, something that I almost missed is, so, um, Christ on Infinite Earths was written by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Um, Marv Wolfman will be writing the Arrow episode. So the guy that knows Christ on Infinite Earths will be writing part of the story, which I just think is a great fit. I'm super excited to see the special come, and obviously I'm most excited for the best Batman to finally show up in live-action form. So this one, this next news topic can be chalked up to the somewhat random and weird category, but... Again, I'm going to need to don my tinfoil hat and bring it back to the comic book news, but I'll get there in a second. Ever played Dungeons and Dragons? I'm struggling with my words tonight. Dungeons and Dragons. Ever play that? Ever thought, hmm, this would make a great movie? No? Well, too bad. We're getting a movie of it anyway. So... We originally had a director for this movie in Chris McKay, who did the Lego Batman movie. He has apparently moved on from the project, and now the directors that had just recently dropped out of The Flash, who also directed Game Night, uh, the most recent vacation movie, um, they will be directing this Dungeons and Dragons movie. Um, okay, that's an odd bit to say the least and I still don't know how this will work as a movie because as someone that has never played Dungeons and Dragons um I thought this was all the game is up to the person creating the game so it's different no matter how you play but that could just be me being ignorant but I I don't know how that's going to work as a movie so this is why I need Josh here for this this story relates to Nightwing and everyone at home is going um, what? But when in doubt, six degrees of Nightwing separation. So, track with me here as I don my tinfoil hat and take you to the Twilight Zone. Chris McKay, the original director of this Dungeons and Dragons movie. Also directed the Lego Batman movie. Do you know what movie he was attached to direct before Dungeons and Dragons? That's right, Nightwing. He was attached to direct Nightwing, but he left to do this project, and that was going to take him, more or less, make him preoccupied up until about 2020, so that bumped back the filming for Nightwing even further. Now, I'm not saying that he's going to go back to work on this Nightwing movie. I think with Robert Pattinson now being our Batman, we're going to be a long way off from Nightwing still, but I think this is interesting to say, I keep my hope alive even if I have no basis for it, I keep my hope alive that the director of Nightwing is now available. And he did say when he left the Nightwing project, um, it will come eventually. It will just take time. We just have to be patient and keep hope alive that this thing will happen. I, mm, I doubt it, but he seems to think so. So I think eventually we will get it, probably. But I think that's what... 
it's just something interesting to note that one, we're getting a Dungeons and Dragons movie, and two, the director of the Nightwing movie is now suddenly available. Probably nothing, but um, worth noting all the same. But piggybacking off of one Nightwing story to a another potential Nightwing story, we have Titans Season 2 finally dropping a trailer for a season that comes out next month. So Josh and I both absolutely loved the first season of Titans. Um, we were very, very hesitant going into it because the trailers did not seem to fit the tone we were expecting for a Titans show. It was very dark, uh, very bleak, very violent. Um, but I remember watching the pilot and watching the second episode, and I was like, oh, wow, this is not what I was expecting, but it got better and better and better um, with a really good cliffhanger for season one. And I remember telling Josh, you need to watch Titans, and he finally watched it, and he loved it too. Um, so we were really excited for season two. My only disappointment with season one of um, Titans is that Dick Grayson, Robin, one of my all-time favorite characters, didn't become Nightwing. Um, even though that's more or less what his arc was setting up of, I don't want to be Robin anymore, I don't want to work for Batman anymore, I don't know what I need to be. Um, so it seemed like all signs pointed to go towards him being Nightwing. Um, I almost guarantee you he will be Nightwing by the end of Season 2, because, um, one, we'll have more time to flesh out his story so he can get him to that place in his life, but two, we're introducing Deathstroke this season. So, for those of that don't know, Deathstroke, one of the most famous Deathstroke stories um, against the Teen Titans is a story called The Judas Contract, which apparently Season 2 will take some influence of. of, um, There's certain members, there's a member of the Titans um, that the team thought that they could trust, but was actually working for Deathstroke slash Slade Wilson, and they betray the Titans for Deathstroke, and he almost destroys the team. That's more or less going to be the overarching theme for Season 2, I believe. But within the story of the Judas Contract, more specifically, Tales of the Teen Titans number 44, because I own it. It's my it's my most prized comic book that I own. Um, Dick Grayson finally sheds the armor that is Robin, and he comes out in what I call the Disco Nightwing, because, oh, it's very 70s and 80s. Um, but... He finally takes on the persona of Nightwing. So I fully expect him to adopt that persona for Season 2. Now, breaking down the trailer for Season 2, I'm really, really hyped. First of all, the roster of Titans that we will see in this season have almost doubled. In the first season, um, we got slight glimpses of characters of Hawk and Dove and Wonder Girl as kind of supporting characters from Dick Grayson's past, but the main Titans team was Dick Grayson Robin, kind of Starfire, we're kind of, we're still kind of working our way there, Raven, and Beast Boy, with some hints of a future cyborg, but in the season 2 trailer alone, we see Aqualad, Superboy, Crypto the Superdog, I'm not gonna lie, the moment I pop the hardest for in the trailer is when um, Connor Kent checks the dog tag and it says, Crypto, and you see Crypto the Superdog, I'm like, oh yeah, Crypto. Um, but yes, the roster seems to have doubled. Interesting thing that I, uh, I guess it didn't really dawn on me the first time I watched it, but at the end, you hear, uh, Jason Todd, the second Robin, um, like, oh man, it's him, Deathstroke, and you get this shot of Deathstroke, which, 
Um, admittedly, I'm not a huge fan of the shot. Not that I don't mind the costume. I'll talk about the costume in a second. I'm not a huge fan of the shot because I had to watch on a really big TV with the brightness turned all the way up to even see half of the detail of the suit because it was so darkly lit. Um, in, in, form, in terms of being a big reveal, I didn't think it was necessarily the best. That being said, I think for um, what they're doing with the show, I think the costume looks really, really cool. But a detail that I didn't quite get the first time that I actually had to, like, wait, wait, that's not right. Um, but I'm sure it was done intentionally is uh, one of Deathstroke's eyes almost kind of looks like a laser sight. Almost looks more like Deadshot, who's someone completely different. Um, but yeah, one of his eyes almost looks like a laser scope on a sniper, but also he has an eye there. So the, one of the most iconic things about Deathstroke is he's only got one eyeball. His mask is almost like Two-Face of one side. He's got an eye and it's orange and the other side is like pitch black because he doesn't have an eye. He's got an eye patch there, which made me do a double take of wait, wait, what? That's not right. But also made me think. Maybe he still has that eye, and the Titans are responsible for taking that eye and why he's got a patch later on in the show. Just just something to keep in mind for the show, uh, for season two. But as was the case for season one, the costume seems spot on. I love the look of um, Connor Kent of Superboy. Then again, it's just a black shirt with a red Superman logo. How are you going to mess that up? Um, but the actor looks spot on. Um, Aqualad looks great. Wonder Girl looks great. I have complete faith when we get the Nightwing suit that it's going to look amazing. Black and blue, please, not Disco Nightwing. Um, I'm just really excited for season two. It's about time that they drop a trailer. Uh, I believe it's September 6th is when season two drops on DC Universe. I'm very much looking forward to it. I think it's going to be a great season that even surpasses the first season, as great as that was. So, yeah, I'm really looking forward to it. And in our last movie news for the day, we will talk about some movie rumors more specifically. And again, this is just rumors. We are just talking about rumors. This is nothing in this is confirmed by any stretch of the imagination. So don't think take this as gospel, but it is something worth noting. So again, I feel like we end up talking about the Matt Reeves Batman movie uh, like once a week. So maybe we need to like title this as like an actual official segment. The Matt Reeves update. Um, But again, there seems to be some speculative casting for the new Batman movie. This time it seems in regards to either allies or heroes, depending on the direction that they want to go with certain characters here. So it's rumored that Jamie Foxx, Juan Carlo Esposito, and John David Washington are all rumored to be in this movie. So with rumors, it's... You never know. Some of these, I have a harder time believing than others. Jamie Foxx, I I know a lot of people hold him to be a really good actor. For me, in the world of comic book movies, I just go off of Electro and Amazing Spider-Man 2, and he was just flat-out awful in that movie. And I've always thought he was just kind of okay. Jamie Foxx has never really been my favorite actor. I don't know. I've... I just don't see him being in um in the Matt Reeves Batman movie. I just it just seems like an odd pick to me. Now, um Giancarlo Esposito, for those of you who 
no Breaking Bad, he was Gus Fringe, who was one of, if not the coolest character on the show besides um, Walt and Jesse. Now, he seems more like a Matt Reeves-type character, um, who I'm not entirely sure, but, again, it never hurts to add talent to your movie, um, and he could be a really, really good pick. Now, the one that actually has a potential character attached to them is uh, John David Washington, who is most um, recently known for his role in Black Klansman, but also, he'll be one of the main characters in Christopher Nolan's upcoming film, Tenant, which had a secret trailer attached to Hobbs and Shaw this past weekend. Uh, we will talk about that when the trailer officially releases. There's some leak stuff, but we don't like to talk about leaks here. We'd much rather have it officially be announced, um, so we'll talk about that in due time. Uh, but John David Washington will be in the next Christopher Nolan movie, so clearly, this guy's taken off big time. He's uh, got a lot of uh, critical acclaim for his work in Black Klansman. I'm sure he'll be great in Tenant. Now, he's rumored to be Harvey Dent. Now, the sources that I'm reading for this article don't specify if he's Harvey Dent or if he's Two-Face, because that's a big difference there. If he's full-on villain or if he's pre-villain with a dark edge to him. Um, for those people that are trying to play the race card of, but, but in the comics, Harvey Dent is white. I can you can immediately shoot that down because for those of you who have very short memories, you do remember you do remember that Billy D. Williams, Lando Calrissian himself, played Harvey Dent in the '89 Batman before he was replaced by Tommy Lee Jones. He was originally supposed to be Two Face eventually in the sequels, um, which is actually a really fun Easter egg in the Lego Batman movie that Billy D. Williams, um, Harvey Dent, is actually Two Face, voiced by Billy D. Williams. Um, so that's not the issue. Um, I, I don't know if I buy this just because at this point in the casting, everything kind of seems like a stab in the dark with casting. That being said, if John David Washington is our new Harvey Dent, awesome. Totally fine with that. Um, in terms of characters, race, or whatever else when it comes to comic book movies... I'm totally fine with whatever race you want to cast your character, so long as it isn't dependent on their... As long as their race isn't critical to their character. Like, to me, if you want to have an African-American actor play Batman, totally fine. Because no part of Batman's character or overall necessity to who he is is the fact that he's Caucasian. Unlike a character like, say, Black Panther... Black Panther has to be played by an African-American actor. He cannot be played by Steve Buscemi, as great as Steve Buscemi is, because being African-American is critical to the character of Black Panther. So if you wanted to have an African-American actor play Harvey Dent, go for it. That's totally fine. Again, never hurts to add talent. Now, this roster is going to be stacked from all reports, so I would not be surprised if... um. If we do have multiple villains, even if it's just little bit parts, but a name that's growing in popularity as much as John, John David Washington is, I don't think he's signed on for a bit part. So either he will be in it in a major role as Harvey Dent, or he's not up for Harvey Dent, if at all. Again, these are just rumors. We can't confirm anything at this time. Just something worth noting. All right, and that will bring us to our main discussion for the evening 
of best movie endings of all time. Even though Josh is not here with us tonight, he did give me his picks ahead of time. He was on the ball in that regard. Yes, Josh, we will throw you under the bus. But, thankfully, some of Josh's picks are some of my picks. But, I feel pretty confident on being able to speak on his behalf. So, I'll let you guys know which ones are Josh's picks and which ones are my picks. And which ones we share. Like our first one, The Shawshank Redemption. Honestly, in my opinion, The Shawshank Redemption not only has one of the best endings of all time, Shawshank Redemption is one of the greatest films of all time. You are hard-pressed to find a film that is more hopeful and optimistic, yet true to the situation of Andy Dufresne lives in a truly dire, uh, sad, and harsh reality, but he clings to this little bit of hope. And so the overall ending when he crawls through the uh, 200 300 yards of poop in the sewage draining system sewage drainage system just to get to freedom and then being able to more or less destroy the institution that locked him up for all those years from the inside out only to live out the rest of his free days with his best friend doing the thing that he always clinged on hope to it's it's just such a hope and encouraging and inspiring ending to one of the greatest films of all time. Um, I am very critical of movies. That should surprise no one, of course. Um, I very rarely ever give a movie a 10 out of 10. I am that critical, uh, but The Shawshank Redemption to me is a 10 out of 10. It is the closest, one of the few movies that I could say it's almost perfect it is so excellent and well done and the ending is just a great capper to how great of a film it is now we have a series that i think is interesting that josh and i have different perspectives since he's not here to talk about it i'll try and talk about it from his perspective we both put lord of the rings but it's interesting to note that we both put different movies in the Lord of the Rings series. I went with Return of the King. Josh actually went with the Two Towers, and I can kind of see why. I think Two Towers has a better, not really cliffhanger, but it leaves you with needing to know what happens next. It's not like Empire Strikes Back, which we'll get to in a little bit. It's not like Empire Strikes Back is just like, whoa, big twist, and then we need to know what happens. Um, Two Towers, it's definitely a middle chapter but it ends it ends on both a dark but a happy note of okay they're back on Frodo and Sam are back on track they're finally near Mount Doom they're getting closer and closer to their goal and Frodo's a little, getting a little despair just because he's been carrying the ring the ring weighs him down it's hard to carry the weight of the ring which just makes him a whiny and insufferable Oh, he's just awful for a lot of the trilogy, but you get why. Um, and he's losing losing uh, hope. And then Samwise Gamgee has like the greatest monologue about Mr. Frodo. Someday we'll look back on this. We'll tell our kids this story. Um, remember the stories that we used to read in the Shire, and they'd be full of dark and dreary times, and you kind of didn't even want to know the ending because you wonder how 
some you could ever get a happy ending when it's been so dark. Um, but the darkness just makes the sun shine all the clearer. And it's such a good closing monologue. I'm sure I missed some lines in there. But um, this is also coming off the back of Aragorn, Legolas, and Gimli and Gandalf's victory at the Battle of Helm's Deep. So it's the good guys finally having a little bit of hope in this really dreary and dark, bleak world. Capped off amazingly by Sam's um, uh, closing monologue. It's a great ending to a movie that sets the stage for a really big closing because it just the two towers ends with sam and frodo looking at mount doom seemingly closer than ever but that's when the danger is really gonna hit and it sets the stage for return of the king which also again i don't give out 10 out of 10s very often return of the king is a 10 out of 10 and that's the movie that I went with for Lord of the Rings that has the best ending. Yes, people like to give uh, Return of the King some flack for um, its multiple endings. But given how much time and effort, not just Peter Jackson, but the whole cast and crew invested into the Lord of the Rings series, it's fully understandable why they felt the need to wrap up everyone's story so completely of what happened to Aragorn, what happened to the Hobbits, um, what happened to Gandalf and Frodo. Everyone kind of needed closure, and I get it. To me, honestly, there's not a single one of those fake endings that I would have cut. I I love all of Return of the King's multiple endings, just because I like, um, and we'll talk about this for another movie in a little bit here, I like that ending when everything gets wrapped up and you see where the characters ultimately end their journey of characters that you spent so much time with that you finally get to see what happens to them where they get to live the rest of their days just you've gone on these characters for such a great time and you finally get to see where they end up i love the ending of return of the king i get why josh likes two towers but for me personally I always go with Return of the King. Um, And also, piggybacking off of that, another movie that kind of had a bit of a drawn-out ending, but it is one that I felt was absolutely justified, and while it may be a more recent addition, I still absolutely loved it. The moment I saw it was the entire ending of Avengers Endgame. So, spoilers naturally for Avengers Endgame, but if you haven't seen it by now... It's the highest grossing movie of all time, so you probably have. Um, But basically, just from Iron Man's funeral onward, I just think it was excellent in terms of wrapping up not just the uh, Avengers Infinity War and Endgame movies, but just all of the Infinity Saga of tying things together, of Morgan at her dad's funeral, of, um, you want something to eat? Cheeseburgers bringing that all the way back from the first Iron Man. Um, And um, Captain America giving the shield to Bucky, um, having a really good emotional moment there. Um, But the real kicker of just hit me right in the feels, always does every time I see the scene, is Sam sees the wedding ring on Cap's finger. And he's like, so... 
You gonna tell me about her? No, I don't think I will. Um, I thought I'd get that life Tony always told me I should get. And the movie ends in the only way that I could think of. In it's Captain America going back in time after he puts all the stones back. And he gets to live the rest of his life with Peggy. And you see the two of them dancing. And it's only poetic that um, the first Avenger finally gets his dance with his girl. And it was just such a good ending for such a good character. But not just that. Everyone seemed to have a good ending. In a world that has a lot of critical fans at times. Looking at you, Game of Thrones or Star Wars or whatever else. Fans can be critical. The general consensus across the board is that Endgame had just stuck the landing. Which is incredibly hard to do with a 10-year-old franchise, but I love the ending to Endgame of just where everyone ended up, how everything was so perfectly wrapped up, all the little details that were brought in of um, cheeseburgers or something I didn't even catch the first time of at the funeral, why Hawkeye's with Scarlet Witch, and it's because it's a callback to Age of Ultron when Hawkeye's just like, you go out that door, you're an Avenger. Just little things like that. Hawkeye being reunited with his family. Just the all of the ending of Endgame was so phenomenal and so well done that I just loved it and I enjoy seeing it time and time again. I'm sure once it comes on Blu-ray next week, they'll be watching it again and again all the more. So switching gears now from a movie of a long storied franchise to a one-shot but the ending sticks with you because of how great of a twist it offers up is a movie called The Usual Suspects. I'm sure some of you have heard of it. The Usual Suspects has one of the greatest twist endings of all time that leaves you just, what? So spoiler alert for The Usual Suspects if you care. Um, the whole time they're looking for a killer and there's a um, guy played by Kevin Spacey that keeps telling about this Kaiser Sose that is a ghost. No one can ever find him. And the big twist is Kevin Spacey, the most quiet and unassuming character in the whole movie, with a limp, is Kaiser Sose. And he's walking away with his limp, and he um, all of a sudden doesn't have the limp anymore. He was acting the whole time, and he just walks away from the police and just walks away scot-free. Just such a good twist ending of... Oh, oh no. Um, so well played. Just incredibly well done by director Brian Singer. Just a really good, well done plot twist that just ends the movie on a perfect note. Um, also, speaking of good twist endings, we'll go with one of Josh's movies um, that I wouldn't have thought about off the top. But yeah, I thought it had a very good twist ending. Um, and that's a movie called Split. So again, spoiler alert for Split if you have not seen it or if you care. Um, so Split is the one with James McAvoy and his 23 different personalities all living inside of him. Um, and a mythical beast that lives inside of him that makes him like super strong and powerful and whatnot. Uh, in and of itself, Split is a really good movie. Um, Shyamalan does his best work. With lower budgets and no expectations. The problems come when he's got a bigger budget and people expect things of him. Um, Case in point, Glass, Last Airbender, The Happening. 
Um, but Split was really, really good. And you think it's just a really good self-contained thriller until the final scene, in which case uh, there's a news report that's talking about um, uh, Wendell Crumb, who is the guy with the different personalities. Um, and this lady in the bar is just like, huh, he sounds almost just like a superhuman, like that guy from all those decades ago. Uh, what what was his name? And all of a sudden, you see Bruce Willis go, Mr. Glass. So now it's established that Split is set in the same universe as Unbreakable. Um, Unbreakable didn't set the world on fire when it came out, but it was cool of Shyamalan to connect two of his movies that are almost like two decades apart and be like, nope. These are in the same universe together. I'm creating my own superhero cinematic universe. Uh, time with glass. But I remember at the time, the reveal in Split was a pretty cool and ingenious twist. It's not something you see very often of, oh, that's pretty cool, of two completely original ideas, years apart, being put together in one series. It would be, I can't even really think of how other other movies could do it. It was just a really clever and cool idea that set the stage for Glass, only for Glass to disappoint us, but um, that's neither here nor there. So um, another one that I have is a movie that I feel like it's criminally underrated at times, but has such a powerful ending that, to be honest, the ending kind of sticks with me more than the rest of the movie. That's not a slight on the rest of the movie, but the ending is just so good. Um, the Book of Eli. So again, as we've been saying with all these, uh, spoiler alert for the Book of Eli, if you care. Um, I can't recommend Book of Eli enough. So what it, Book of Eli is, is Denzel Washington is in this post-apocalyptic world, and he's trying to make his way out west. He's, he's on a special mission, a mission from God, if you want to put it that way, of... He has this special book that he needs to get out west. He needs to deliver out west. You don't really know why until the end of the movie or why he's as important as he is. So he finally makes it out west, um, but he loses the book to the villain played by Gary Oldman. Gary Oldman opens the book to find out that the entire book is made in Braille. Plot twist, Denzel Washington's character, who has been the coolest fighter, the toughest guy, the most awesome fighter in the whole movie, like nothing phases this guy, is blind. He is a blind man, but you find out that the book he's been transporting, one is in Braille, but two, it is the last known copy of the Bible. And it's the most powerful weapon in the world because it changes the hearts and minds of those who read it. And so Gary Oldman's character was going to use it to, more or less, since the rest of his community couldn't read, he'd be like, these are the words of the Bible, and he'd make up whatever he wanted. But um, Denzel Washington used that Bible with the Braille. He memorized the whole entire Bible to take it out west to this printing press that could eventually make more and more and more of these Bibles and distribute them to the rest of the world to kind of restore balance and some form of order back in the world. It was just a really cool reveal that the character that you've been 
that you've known and you've cared about for this whole movie has been doing this entire amazing epic quest completely blind. But also that, he literally was almost sent from God as a messenger to take the, um, the word of the Bible out so that the rest of the world could experience it. Christian movies typically aren't very good, but I could always consider Book of Eli to be a Christian film, even if others may not. Its message is incredible. The ending is phenomenal. And more often than not, the ending kind of sticks out to me more than the rest of the movie. But that's just because the ending was so good for the Book of Eli. Um, Another one that, like Endgame or like Lord of the Rings, I like seeing how characters' journeys wrap up and how it ends. Um, And one of the franchises that I really grew up with a lot... um, I went to midnight release parties for this, for this, um, not just for the book, but for the movies, was Harry Potter. So naturally, um, there's a lot riding on Deathly Hallows Part 2. One, it had to deliver more than the previous one, because Deathly Hallows Part 1 is the worst of the Harry Potter movies. Well, it was until Crimes of Grindelwald came out. Thanks for that, Johnny Depp. Um, but Part 2 had to deliver this epic finale, but then, I remember going into the movie, there is an epilogue in... Uh, the book. It's more or less 19 years later, and you get to see what happens with Harry, Ron, Hermione, with their kids. Um, Harry's sending off one of his kids, Albus Severus Potter, to uh, Hogwarts, and the kid's nervous about what house he's going to be ended up in. Um, and I remember talking to my mom about it before the movie came out. We're just like, I don't know if they'll put the 19 years later in it or not, but we kind of really hope they do, because it was nice to see where everyone ended up before, you know, Cursed Child ruined everything. Um, but when that ended, when that finally showed up in Deathly Hallows Part 2, it was just nice to see of, yes, everyone's safe. This is where they ended up. They all ended up happy. Um, Harry and Malfoy ended up on good terms. It's It was a nice bookend to a franchise that was over 10 years into making that I just grew up with, I read the books, I saw the movies, I was so invested in Harry Potter, still to this day, I still have a very fond attachment to it, yes, I'm critical of Crimes of Grindelwald, because I care so much about the Harry Potter franchise, and I love how they finally tied everything up in uh, Deathly Hallows Part 2, I just think it was the best possible send-off that they could have done, and I loved how they did it, um, go back to another one that Josh did, um, that I wouldn't have put on initially, but, yeah, I completely agree. Um, when do you think best Star Wars endings? Some people may put Return of the Jedi, um, when Luke, like, sees the Force projection of his father, which should not be Hayden Christensen, it should be, uh, Sebastian Shaw, but have beaten that horse enough. Uh, but Josh, and I'm tempted to agree with him, put... Empire Strikes Back as his best movie ending for the Star Wars franchise, and I completely agree. Um, not only were we left with this big cliffhanger, but we were just left with this uncertainty with our heroes of where do we go? Han is frozen, potentially dead and never coming back. Luke has just got his arm chopped off and his morale is at an all-time low. The Empire is rising to prominence. We don't know what we're going to do. And yeah, it made you have to see... Return of the Jedi, and it, Empire Strikes Back is still 
a phenomenal Star Wars movie, if not the best Star Wars movie. Uh, a New Hope is my favorite, but I think Empire Strikes Back is the best of the series, and it absolutely stuck its landing. Phenomenal ending, phenomenal movie. And, yeah, so I have two more superhero ones, and then I'll go with the one that always hits me the hardest, and then we'll take it home from there. Um, so, naturally, again, it seems like I say I don't give movies 10 out of 10s a lot, but we're going to talk about a third one on my list. I swear I don't have that many 10 out of 10s, but we're going to talk about almost all the ones today. Um, the Dark Knight. I feel confident giving that movie 10 out of 10, along with The Return of the King and Shawshank Redemption. And part of the reason for that is the ending. Just all of The Dark Knight is so well done and well crafted. It doesn't even feel like a Batman movie. It's just a really well told crime drama more than anything else. It's just so well done. But at, with the ending, um, Harvey Dent, going full on Two-Face, has captured Jim Gordon's family and is threatening to um, kill them if Jim chooses um, a coin toss incorrectly. Typical Two-Face stuff. Batman comes in, um, knocks Two-Face to a ledge, um, and then they both fall. Somehow Batman's okay, and Two-Face dies, maybe hockey pads or whatever, um, and that ends up killing Harvey. But Harvey Dent was the big face, the big icon of Gotham City. A lot of people were looking to Harvey Dent to save Gotham from um, the criminal underworld, Harvey Dent was responsible for taking out a lot of the big mob enforcers in Gotham. So now, what does the city do now that Harvey Dent has been responsible for killing all these people and almost killing a cop's family? Batman in that moment realizes that Harvey Dent, what he stood for as an idea and what he could represent to the city is more powerful than anything Batman could ever be. So he tells Commissioner Gordon to blame the crimes on him so that everyone sees him as an outlaw and that ideal image of Harvey Dent still stands and he becomes the vigilante, he becomes the outlaw, that everyone has to chase him so that way people still keep their hope up and still believe in Harvey Dent and believe in something. It's such a good sacrificial ending but absolutely stays in line with the character of Batman and it kind of ends the film on an optimistic yet kind of down note of the Joker won. He he didn't die. He didn't defeat Batman, but he defeated... He almost defeated what the purpose of Harvey Dent, Gordon, and Batman's plan was. He accomplished what he set out to do, and Batman, more or less after that, went into retirement until Dark Knight Rises, which has his own issues... Um, but just the ending of Dark Knight encapsulated everything great about the entire film leading up to it. It was so well done, well crafted. It it just was the cherry on top of one of the best movies I've ever seen. Now, when it comes to comic book movies, though, I don't think Dark Knight has the best ending. I will give the most impactful and emotional ending in any comic book movie to Logan and... Oh, man, that's a tough watch, but it's a good watch. 
So, again, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but Logan is Hugh Jackman's final outing as Wolverine, and we all knew it going into it that there's a pretty good chance that Wolverine may not walk out of this, and sure enough, that was the case. But going into it, there was no chance we could have guessed how devastating it was to watch. So we lost not only Wolverine, but also Professor X in the movie. So we already had this emotional weight going into it. But towards the end, um, the Wolverine clone that more or less killed Professor X is coming after X-23, um, a clone like a daughter of Wolverine and the friends that, that he's trying to get across the border with X-23 and so Wolverine uh, finally roids up one last time to go into full berserker rage and kills a whole bunch of guards and tries to fight this giant clone of himself that's superior to him in every single way and he knows he's got no chance but he's trying to protect this daughter of his that he doesn't know very well but he's determined he's going out on his terms, and he knows he's dying anyway. And so he fights to his last breath against this um, far superior version of him, and he gets impaled on a tree. But he does his job, and the clone is defeated. And he and um, his daughter, X-23, is holding his hand as he dies, which actually fulfills a prophecy from the last X-Men movie. Um when his um, co-star in the movie says something about, I see your future, I see you um, dying with your heart in your hand. And so Logan, as he's dying, is holding X-23's hand because he finally has peace. He has something that he truly loves and was dying for. And it's, it's just such a hard watch because, as anybody that has grown up watching comic book movies... Hugh Jackman has been Wolverine since 2000. He was Wolverine for almost 20 years. And to see him go out on this Old West style of cowboy goes out on his saddle and just goes out to the unknown, going out like the true hero that he was. I was already tearing up um, towards the end of that movie when it seemed pretty obvious that he was dying. But then I absolutely just lost it when X-23 is burying um, Wolverine, he's got the little... She makes the little um, cross out of some sticks and put it as a headstone for his grave. But then she turns the cross on its side to make an X. Wolverine will always be an X-Men. And at that point, my whole theater, myself included, we just, we just lost it. That, oh, that is the saddest, but one of the most emotionally fulfilling moments in any comic book movie. I've ever seen. It was just so well done. It was such a proper send-off to the character. You couldn't have topped that. I'm glad that was the last we ever saw of Hugh Jackman's Wolverine because there's no way we could top that. It's just a such a great send-off. Now, I will say, though, that for me personally, I am completely biased when I say this. The best movie ending is the one I have the biggest emotional connection to. And I will proudly say, I don't care if you judge me or not, this is the movie ending that I can never get through without crying because of how much it hits me personally. 
and that's why to me it's my favorite and the best movie ending of all time Toy Story 3 I really enjoyed Toy Story 4 I was very hesitant because of how good Toy Story 3's ending was of you didn't need to keep this going but Toy Story 4 was actually good 4's ending is not nearly as impactful as 3 but it justified itself enough but I felt that way that there's no way it can top it because Toy Story 3 concluded the chapter so perfectly of Toy Story. If you ended it at Toy Story 3, totally would have been fine for me and it would have been one of the greatest trilogies of all time. Of Anyone that's been listening to the show for any stretch of time knows me, knows how much I treasure and love Toy Story. The whole Toy Story trilogy and Toy Story 4, is so close to my heart. It's one of my favorite series ever, especially that first one. And so, Toy Story 3 came around the time that a lot of us that grew up watching Toy Story were going off to college, just like Andy. So, we were in his situation of seeing him get rid of his toys. It was it was hard to watch. It still is. And it's so well done, but it's it's a hard goodbye but it's a goodbye that everyone has to go through in their life of change happens. Change is a good thing. And Toy Story has always addressed those mature issues. Pixar as a whole has addressed those mature issues of things change. People grow up, and that's okay. Uh, just all of Toy Story 3 ended so well. I remember when I went into the theater for Toy Story 3, I was very hesitant just because the first two were so good. Of Andy's going off to college? That sounds like a dumb premise. I was not expecting to be hit nearly with the level of emotions that I was for Toy Story 3 and it was so good just such a proper send off and yeah it to me that ending will never be topped uh and then it just got worse when Stan Lee died and there was that great meme that went around of Andy was Stan Lee and all the toys inside the bucket um, were different Marvel characters that he was handing over to Kevin Feige to take care of. And so he gets to the very bottom, and there's Woody. And instead of Woody, it's Spider-Man's face. And he's like, and this one was my best friend. You've got to be extra careful with him. And I felt that, just like I felt it in Toy Story 3, of Woody is everyone's toy. He's He's the thing that everyone grew up with. Everyone grew up with Woody. Everyone grew up with Buzz and company. And just seeing them go, saying goodbye to Andy because he's growing up. Just a phenomenal ending. Toy Story 3 will never be topped. But, yeah. What do you guys think about movie endings? What do you think are the best and maybe even some of the worst? Let me know some of the worst movie endings you've ever seen. I always love reading your comments and hearing from you guys. Um, Let us know in the comments below. And if you haven't already, subscribe to us on whatever audio platform you listen to us on whether that's google Podcasts, spotify itunes youtube and if you haven't already subscribe to us on youtube at uncharted media and as always stay sharp movie guys and gals